started, everyone. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Stephen Frank. Dr. Frank is an associate professor at Johns Hopkins in the Department of Anesthesia and the Division of um, uh, Vascular Surgery. Um, he did his residency training at Hopkins, followed up with a fellowship there as well in vascular, thoracic, and cardiac anesthesia. Um, so he obviously sees a lot of bleeding and has so for uh, multiple years. Um, along the way, based on his research and clinical work, um, he has recently become the medical director of the entire Johns Hopkins Health Systems Blood Management Program, one of the first of its kind. Um, and has saved um, uh, many, many dollars on this and um, improved uh, resource utilization to a degree that I can only hope to reach one day. Um, and uh, as evidence of his activity in this field, he has over 100 publications, um, most of which are on the topic of bleeding. Um, he's really a true educator it's, uh, and uh, interested in and uh, teaching you all. So we're lucky to have him actually for the second time for 2015. Um, he's been kind enough to come back and, and uh, talk to this, uh, you all being the new group because um, it was a worthwhile uh, topic to address. So thanks, Dr. Frank, and welcome. Thank you, Mike. I'm privileged to be here today. Thank you for the invitation. And I hope you enjoy this talk about evidence-based transfusion practice and blood management programs. Okay, uh, so first my disclosures, and I have uh, been on advisory boards for three different companies involved with blood management. And there's also a potential bias in my talk because I had a life-saving transfusion in 1988, and that happened right here. So this is me. I was a third year resident in anesthesia. Uh, that's my bike, that's my abdomen after an emergency splenectomy at shock trauma. So I had a helicopter ride from Green Spring Valley Road after my uh, car versus bicycle accident. Uh, after my splenectomy, I got six units of red cells, left the hospital with a hemoglobin of seven and I probably wouldn't be standing here today if it weren't for a transfusion. Seriously, and I might not be standing here today if they had over-transfused me either because the blood was not very safe back in 1988. Now that being said, uh, transfusion saves lives. Uh, the Joint Commission held an overuse summit three years ago, and not only did they recognize that transfusion was the most commonly performed procedure in U.S. hospitals, they also identified it as one of the top five most overused procedures, right up there with heart vessel stents, tympanostomy tubes, or even antibiotics for the common cold. So how did they determine that there was overuse? Well, it's based on evidence that we'll see in a minute. So Choosing Wisely came out two years ago. Uh, Choosing Wisely is a nationwide campaign to reduce unnecessary tests and procedures. And now we have five different societies with choosing wisely aims to reduce unnecessary transfusions, including my own society, the ASA, uh, critical care medicine, the hospitalist, the hematologist, and even the blood bankers have such choosing wisely aims. In fact, uh, blood management is such a hot field right now uh, that in April this year, the number one scientific journal in the world, Nature, uh, had an article on blood management where they recognized the overuse and the cost, and they said researchers are working on ways to cut back. And although I'll probably never have my own article in Nature, I was lucky to be quoted in this article, uh, and they had me they got me to say that we were brainwashed into thinking that blood saves lives and the more you give the better and now we've gone 180 degrees and we think that less is more. So one 
One thing about blood management is it's one of the few areas in medicine where you can achieve all three of these at the same time. You can reduce risk, improve outcomes, and save cost. So usually reducing risk and improving outcomes cost extra, uh, but here we can save. And so we're going to look at risk first, and then outcomes, and then cost. So I like to think of the risk of transfusion divided into three categories the rare, not so rare, and then the common events associated with transfusion. So nowadays with the nucleic acid testing that we do uh, for viral uh, uh, hep C, hep B, and HIV, uh, the risk of hep C and HIV is thought to be one in two million transfusions. So that means eight people in the United States should get HIV and eight people should get hepatitis C from a transfusion this year in the US. Hepatitis B, however, because the test is, has a longer window period, uh, is 10 times more frequent. So 80 people should get hepatitis B this year in the U.S. But what people forget about uh, is the number one most common cause of transfusion-related death, which is TRALI, or transfusion-related acute lung injury, which is an inflammatory cytokine-mediated response in the lung that looks just like any form of ARDS uh, that is mediated by HLA antibodies uh, and antigen reactions with transfusion uh, and it's thought to occur one in 5,000 transfusions and is also thought to be 10% fatal. So TRALI is the number one cause of transfusion-related death, often goes overlooked because it looks like ARDS from any other cause. Uh, hemolytic reactions uh, which are often due to the wrong unit being given, uh, are much more common than we would like. Uh, sometimes the wrong unit gets, goes unrecognized. If you give an O to an A, it'll probably go unrecognized. Uh, but then there's the common events like transfusion-associated cardiac overload, or TACO, which is very common. Uh, that's why we used to give Lasix to all the little old patients uh, with their blood transfusions so they, they could handle the volume. Well, this is the number two cause of transfusion-related death. And in fact, we, we presented an M&M case of TACO in our uh, neuro ICU just recently. Uh, so people, people talk about viral risk of transfusion, but they forget about these much more common events. In fact, uh, Jeff Carson had a paper uh, two years ago that compared the risk of hepatitis C and HIV to the same risk of getting struck and killed by lightning. And this was a serious comparison. He looked at the incidence of lightning strikes in all 50 states in the U.S. And it turns out that Wyoming, the risk uh, state with the highest risk of lightning strike, had, had about the same risk of, of death as, uh, as the hepatitis C or HIV with transfusion. So uh, this, he did us a disservice because now nurses and doctors, they think, oh, the blood is so safe that we could just give it to everybody because the risk is hardly you know, recognizable. But they forget about these other uh, side effects and complications. What about cost? So um, I bet your costs are similar to our cost. Uh, and the blood acquisition cost at my institution for red cells, plasma, platelets, cryo, in dollars per year is shown on the y-axis. So a total of $28 million a year in blood acquisition cost. So if we can reduce blood use by 10%, that's almost $3 million. And by the way, uh, blood is almost, uh, it's poorly reimbursed or not reimbursed at all uh, by Medicare. And, and it's uh, because of the DRG bundled payments that we get, uh, it's really not reimbursed. It comes right out of the hospital's bottom line. And uh, this is the acquisition cost. The true cost of bringing a unit of blood all the way from the donor to the recipient is three and a half times the acquisition cost because there's 70 steps along the way between the donor and the recipient, including storage and transportation and testing type and screen, type and cross. Uh, so, so the true cost could be three or four times higher. So what about outcomes? And what about transfusion triggers? 
So I took uh, all the evidence I could find and put it on one slide. Uh, so we now have four society guidelines and seven randomized trials that all support hemoglobin triggers of seven in most patients and eight in patients with cardiovascular disease. Now, this is for patients who are not actively bleeding, okay? So uh, triggers and, and evidence for hemoglobin triggers do not apply to actively hemorrhaging patients. But uh, we now have four societies, and these seven randomized trials are considered landmark studies. Uh, so you can see all these landmark studies compared a lower trigger of seven or eight over here to a higher trigger of nine or 10 over here. And with the higher triggers, they either found the same outcome, meaning uh, giving more blood was not helpful, or worse outcome in three of the studies, so giving more blood was actually harmful. So you can see these studies were done in a variety of all different kinds of patients, from critically ill medical ICU patients, that's the TRIC trial right here, by the way, 25% of the TRIC trial patients died in the hospital. That's how sick they were, okay? And even though they're that sick, uh, they did not do better. They did worse with higher hemoglobin triggers, okay? Uh, elderly orthopedic patients with cardiovascular risk factors, uh, they did just as well with a trigger of eight as they did with a trigger of 10. So why isn't giving extra blood to higher hemoglobins better for patients? We think, you know, if you're delivering more oxygen, uh, shouldn't the patients do better? Because how can that be a bad thing? Well, it could have something to do with the storage lesion, uh, which is what happens to red cells over the six weeks of time that we store them in the blood bank. And I like to think of the storage lesion uh, as why your own red cells function better than transfused red cells, or perhaps why the higher hemoglobin triggers didn't improve outcomes in the randomized trials. So maybe the blood we're giving is not doing its job. In fact, uh, this is what red cells look like on day one when they're donated. This is after three weeks and then after five weeks of storage in the blood bank. And you can see the membranes are misshapen uh, there's spiculated, there's echinocytes and spherocytes. So uh, the membrane undergoes oxidative damage. In fact, uh, it's pretty clear that transfused red cells, especially uh, acutely following the transfusion, are not normal. And here's an example of the changes that they undergo during storage. So the membrane becomes less flexible or less deformable, uh, and that's important. I'll show you why in a minute. Uh, 2,3-DPG is completely depleted from red cells after 10 days of storage. Uh, and so the, the hemoglobin oxygen curve is shifted to the left. I'll show you why that could be a problem. Uh, nitric oxide is completely gone from red cells after six hours of storage. So the transfused red cell becomes a nitric oxide scavenger after transfusion, which can cause a basic constriction in ischemic beds. And the cells are more adherent to endothelial surfaces and more aggregable to themselves. So deformability of the red cell membrane is important because the red cell averages seven microns in diameter and the capillaries that they flow through range from five to 10 microns. So you're, you're asking a red cell to travel through a capillary that could even be smaller than, than its own diameter. So it has to change shape to, uh, to get through capillary beds. And if the membrane becomes stiffened, that could be a problem. So we, uh, we looked at deformability in, in our own lab, shown here on the y-axis. Uh, so we have an ectocytometer that squeezes cells through a thin channel and looks at their change in shape. So higher is better, that's more deformable, and lower is worse, that's a stiffening of the cell membrane. So we plotted deformability against the duration of storage of red cells all the way out to 42 days, and somewhere about uh, 21 days is where we found a step off where the membranes became stiffer and less deformable. 
And then we wanted to see if this loss of deformability was reversible after transfusion. So uh, we took patients undergoing multi-level spine fusion surgery, uh, and we looked at their red cell deformability on the y-axis. Again, higher is better. And then we followed them for one, two, and three days after surgery. And so the ones who got minimal transfusion had minimal change in deformability. But the ones who got five or more units of red cells from the blood bank, moderate transfusion, they had a loss of deformability of their circulating red cells. And perhaps most interestingly, this change was not reversible. So on day two and day three, the, the cell membranes did not improve, suggesting that this is a permanent injury to the cell membrane, uh, which is thought to be due to oxidative damage. So this uh, paper we had two years ago was uh, written about in the media, and they interviewed the chief of the Red Cross, uh, Richard Benjamin, and they asked him about the shelf life of donor blood, whether it should be changed. And he said, the jury's still out. We're waiting on randomized trials before we decide. And I'll show you those in a minute. So uh, we mentioned 2,3-DPG and the hemoglobin oxygen curve. So uh, we just recently completed a, a red cell quality study where we looked at cell saver red cells, fresh red cells, and then banked red cells or stored stored and banked are the same. Uh, and we plotted the hemoglobin oxygen curves and we found that cell saver red cells looked identical to fresh red cells because they're only outside the body for an hour, maybe two hours, rather than four or five or six weeks, okay? So the banked blood is left shifted, meaning uh, a higher affinity for oxygen and less willing to give off oxygen at the tissue level. And why is this, why is banked blood left shifted? Because uh, when we looked at the stored or banked blood and measured DPG levels in the red cells, there's a 90% depletion of DPG uh, compared to fresh blood or cell saver blood, which is essentially fresh. And then we plotted the P50, which is an index of the leftward shift of the curve. And then the banked blood was indeed leftward shifted compared to cell saver blood. And then we wanted to look at the recovery of, of DPG after transfusion. So we, we took patients that only were transfused intraoperatively, so no ongoing post-op transfusions. Uh, and then we looked at the recovery rate of this loss of DPG. And it was a very slow recovery. Uh, this was controversial. There's some papers said one day, some papers said three days. And so we found that even after three days, uh, DPG levels were still significantly below normal. So what about clinical studies on new versus old blood? Well, uh, the first big study to come out was by my new uh, boss and chair, uh, Colleen Cook. When she was at the Cleveland Clinic, uh, she, she had this New England Journal paper in 2008 uh, where they took 4,000 cardiac surgery patients retrospectively, and they, they looked at those who got exclusively fresher blood, uh, median of 10 days old, and those who got exclusively older blood, uh, median of 20 days old. And so they found a two-fold increase in mortality after cardiac surgery in those who got the older blood. And this was a, a big paper, and it's, despite its retrospective nature, it prompted a huge degree of interest in the storage lesion. And since then, there have been three randomized trials, uh, one in neonates uh, that found no difference between fresher blood and older blood. And they, they had seven versus 14 day old blood because they thought it was unethical to give blood older than 14 days to neonates because that's not routine care. Uh, so perhaps they didn't answer the question completely. Uh, then just in April this year, the recess trial came out and the ABLE trial came out, both in the New England Journal. Big randomized trials, tens of millions of dollars, uh, and both of them found no difference between fresher blood and older blood in either cardiac surgery or critically ill ICU patients 
you might have seen the ABLE study. This is a critical care conference, right? So uh, in the ABLE study, 35% of the patients died in the hospital. That's how sick they were in the critically ill ICU patients. In the recess study, cardiac surgery, about 4% of them died in the hospital, so not as sick. And so they compared 7 verse 28 and 6 verse 22 because the IRBs, again, would not let them uh, give the oldest blood in the hospital to the patients. So we still give 35-day-old, 42-day-old blood to patients, but they wouldn't let them do it in this study. Okay, so this is my area of interest, which is the collection and analysis of blood utilization data. And I was asked to give a talk by this title to the Red Cross uh, three years ago to their medical directors meeting. And at the end of, of my talk on data collection, this is what we concluded. So we concluded that medicine lags behind fast food chains and auto parts stores in automating data collection. And you might think that's funny, but I think it's actually true, and I'll give you an example. So uh, recently, a survey showed that half of U.S. hospitals still use paper records uh, in the operating room for anesthesia records. So this is what I call the old-fashioned paper anesthesia record uh, that we gave up in 2009. I think you guys gave up yours as well. Uh, and so right here is where you chart blood and uh, I think that means red cells and plasma and platelets. And it's virtually impossible to collect data from paper records. If anybody's tried it, they, they know what I mean. So in 2010, we went to the electronic record. Uh, we chose this ma uh, manufacturer, and every unit of blood and blood component gets entered along with the lab values. And now we have a database that can be queried uh, to look at blood utilization. So the first thing we did with this database, uh, we took all the surgeons at our institution and ranked them from lowest to highest hemoglobin transfusion thresholds, uh, hemoglobin on the x-axis, and all the anesthesiologists and ranked them from lowest to highest transfusion thresholds. And the left edge of the red bar is the average hemoglobin before the transfusion, which we call the trigger. And the right edge of the red bar is the average hemoglobin after the transfusion, which we call the target. So no one talks about target. Everybody talks about, in these randomized trials, the trigger, where you start giving the blood, but no one talks about when you stop giving the blood. So with this large variation in practice, a three-gram variation among surgeons and about the same variation among anesthesiologists. Uh, this was written about in the media, too, uh, showing a wide variation in practice and suggesting a need for improved blood management strategies. And they point out that transfusion is the most commonly performed procedure in U.S. hospitals and also a costly procedure, and that's why it showed up in the business section. So we took it one step farther, and we, instead of numbers, we, we put names on the y-axis. So here's the names of all of our surgeons who had given at least 10 units of blood in the previous year. And then we superimposed the trigger to target range from the two biggest randomized trials. Okay, and you can see that in these findings from 2010 and 11, that about three-quarters of our providers were transfusing beyond the evidence-based range. And uh, we thought there's room for improvement. Then we uh, hung the data on the wall. So we put it on the wall, and I'll tell you one thing I learned is when you put a rank order bar graph with doctors' names on the bathroom door, they will line up to see where they stand compared to their peers. And so they did line up. Everybody wanted to know where they stood compared to their peers on the hemoglobin transfusion curves. And uh, at this point, I tell a story about surgeon number 44, who is a friend of mine, and I tell the story with permission, with his permission. Uh, so he uh, recently completed his 2000th Whipple, which we think might be more than anyone else in the world. Uh, he, uh, I tell people it's a difficult operation if they don't know. 
And then I sent him uh, this figure right here by email on Christmas Day in uh, 2011. So I don't know why Christmas Day, but I, I wanted to tell him that he had the highest average hemoglobin in the hospital in his transfused patients. And this is what he told my anesthesia colleague in his next Whipple. He said, if you hang that blood, Steve Frank is going to be all over our case. So he did a 180 in his practice. He, he had no idea he had the highest hemoglobin. And so he, we think he either heard about the bathroom door or he didn't like being on the edge of the curb. Because no one knew his hemoglobin levels were higher until we looked at it with the electronic records. And this is his transfusion rate. Since then, uh, his red cell utilization has dropped to about 60%. And surprisingly, his plasma and platelet transfusion rates have also dropped because I think there's a lot of surgeons and a lot of anesthesia and critical care docs that believe if they need some red, they need some yellow to go with it. And if you can cut back on one, you can cut back on the other. I know you guys were part of the proper trial, right? So these are the methods of uh, patient blood management, which has been defined as giving the right dose of the right product to the right patient at the right time for the right reason. So we've learned lessons, uh, for example, uh, treating anemia before elective surgery. So if you can give them $5 of iron pills, uh, you can avoid $500 worth of blood sometimes. Uh, and plus they show up with their own red cells instead of requiring someone else's from the blood bank. Sometimes we even get aggressive with anemia treatment with intravenous iron, which is way underutilized, uh, or erythropoietin, uh, which is sometimes hard to get reimbursed for. Uh, less invasive surgery. So, for example, uh, this has really changed blood utilization dramatically. The robotic prostatectomies that we do, uh, one in the last thousand patients were transfused. One in a thousand. When I did the prostate cases when I was a resident open, virtually every single patient was transfused, and now it's one in a thousand. Same with robotic hysterectomies and endovascular stent grafts for aortic aneurysms has dramatically reduced uh, blood use. Uh, blood salvage, which is the other name for the cell saver, uh, has been called the centerpiece of blood conservation. So the, the cell saver in many hospitals is way underutilized. Uh, I bet you guys do utilize it here, and you can save a lot of red cells. Plus, the patient gets their own blood back that's fresh instead of someone else's from the blood bank. Uh, minimizing phlebotomy, I'll show you in a minute how much blood our patients lose just due to lab testing. Uh, computer provider order entry with clinician decision support, I'll show you that in a minute. Antifibrinolytics, uh, like transamic acid. Uh, I think you guys believe in the CRASH-2 study and I think you give transamic acid here for your hemorrhaging trauma patients. So uh, they've been called the game changer, by the way, uh, antifibrinolytic drugs. Uh, point of care testing like thromboelastography uh, has been a big uh, improvement in care because now we have a rapid turnaround with results that tell us if patients are coagulopathic within 15 minutes. Uh, and we can make informed decisions on plasma, platelets, and cryoprecipitate. Uh, transfusion audits with feedback, I'll show you that. And then education is important like we're doing today. So we did a survey in our ICUs, uh, five different ICUs of how much blood a patient loses per day uh, due to lab testing. So we accounted the blood that you send to the lab plus the wasted discard to clear the lines. Uh, and we found that the average patient in the average ICU lost about 60 mLs a day uh, to lab testing, which is just over 1% of your blood volume. That's assuming you're a normal size person. If you're a small person, it could be much greater. Uh, so 1% of your blood volume is exactly how much erythropoiesis you have every day. You're destroying and creating about 1% of your red cells every day. 
So you're essentially canceling out erythropoiesis by sending routine lab tests. Uh, in this one ICU, the neurocritical care unit, where they get a lot of chronic patients, they use this $9 device that returns the wasted discard uh, in a sterile fashion, and they, they reduce their blood loss in half. And by using smaller phlebotomy tubes as well, uh, you can reduce blood loss. Uh, best practice advisories. Uh, so what a BPA is, is it's a pop-up alert in the order entry system that says, hey, are you sure you want to place this order? Okay, so we designed a BPA based on a hemoglobin uh, of seven. So when you order red cells, the computer checks the last hemoglobin. If it's seven or greater, you get this advisory message uh, that evidence-based uh, transfusion practice suggests a hemoglobin trigger of seven or eight in patients with cardiovascular disease. And then uh, we give two reference uh, landmark trials uh, that are linked to URL, so you can read the full text article if you want, if you're in the hospital. And then if you do decide to proceed with the order uh, in spite of the alert, then you have to pick a reason for transfusion, uh, such as active bleeding, which is our number one most common reason, uh, symptomatic anemia is number two, and then cardiac disease is number three. We recently designed a plasma alert and a platelet alert, uh, which have not gone live yet, but we use an INR of 1.5 uh, to trigger the plasma alert, and then we give the institutional guidelines, and then we use a platelet count of 50,000 to trigger the alert, and then you have to pick a reason to go outside of guidelines. So with a combination of education and these best practice alerts, uh, we have managed to decrease the out-of-guideline red cell orders. So here's four years of time on the x-axis, and here's number of red cells per month given outside of guidelines on the y-axis. So we went from 1,000 units a month to about 400 units a month that are given outside of guidelines so that's a 54% decrease. But uh, for blood utilization in average units per patient, we had a 14% decrease. And here's all the different surgical specialties uh, looking at their change in blood use over that four-year period. And so you can see those like vascular transplant and cardiac that have the most massive transfusions had the least change in, in blood use. So tranexamic acid, I have one slide on that because it's being called a game changer at the national transfusion meetings and also at the orthopedic surgery meetings. They're talking about TXA as a game changer. And what it is, it's an antifibrinolytic drug that stabilizes clot. It doesn't form clot. It stabilizes clot from being broken down once it's already formed. Uh, so we looked at blood use per month, units per month on the top, and units per patient on the bottom in hip and knee replacements over a three-year period. Uh, and this is where they started using tranexamic acid right here. And uh, they also brought in some new surgeons that happened to use tranexamic acid. So of course, more than one thing changes at a time. Uh, but we found a 73% decrease in average units per patient for hip and knee replacement at where most of these are done at Bayview Medical Center. And so uh, some joint replacement programs are talking about transfusion rates close to zero, uh, and they're attributing this to tranexamic acid. So we now have a, a blood management program that covers all five hospitals in our health system. Uh, that's Howard County, Sibley, Suburban, and Bayview Hospital. And we have uh, 25 people involved. We meet monthly uh, to talk about how to improve evidence-based practice. And we have strong support from our leadership, uh, hospital leadership and the Safety and Quality Institute leadership. And blood management's very data-intensive, as you can see already. 
uh, but I'm going to show you our dashboards and our reports. So dashboards are the big picture for the whole hospital, looking at changes in monthly blood use. And then reports are more specific, and they drill down to the department level and the provider level. Uh, and, and we look at compliance with transfusion guidelines. So this is our dashboard for red cells. So uh, here's the whole health system on top. And here's Hopkins, Bayview, Howard County, Suburban, and Sibley. And on the y-axis is average number of red cell units per discharge patient. So we can track month-to-month -month changes in, in red cell utilization across the whole health system. And then cost avoidance up here for all five hospitals. So for example, you can see that Bayview leads the way with 11% decrease in uh, red cell utilization and $110,000 a year in cost saving. One thing we noticed early on in our dashboards is um, these three hospitals, the community hospitals, uh, were giving the majority of their red cell orders were for two units, okay, giving two at a time. Uh, whereas at Bayview, only 9% of their orders were for two units of red cells. And at, at Johns Hopkins, only 15% were for two units. So when I went to med school, we were taught to always give two units of red cells to everybody because if they needed any, they needed two. And now the experts in the field are saying, uh, including choosing wisely, is saying to give single unit transfusions in patients who are not actively bleeding and then reassess them uh, to see if they need additional units. So we had a campaign across the health system called Why Give Two When One Will Do? Uh, and I didn't make this up. Other people have used it before. And, uh, and it works because uh, we had a 31% decrease in these double unit transfusion orders. So even if you use a perfectly evidence-based trigger, okay, from the TRIC trial, let's say uh, you wait till all your patients are 6.9 before you transfuse. If you give them a large dose of blood, you're not gonna see any change. So uh, this is our drill down provider level report. So I chose the Department of Orthopedics here because uh, they have a high transfusion trigger for hemoglobin triggers. And on the y-axis are all the orthopedic attendings in our facility. On the x-axis is the number of red cell units that were given for the month of, of the quarter of October, November, December. And so the green, yellow, red is the proportion of red cell orders for hemoglobin less than 7, 7 to 7.9, and 8 or higher. So the red represents opportunity of transfusions given with a preceding hemoglobin of 8 or higher. And this way we can set up a competition among providers. So this, this individual had no red, and this guy had 80% red. So uh, unless his patients were all actively bleeding, uh, there's a lot of room for improvement. We also took the same reports to uh, the community hospitals. This is Howard County General. And they're on the EPIC system, so we got th these data from EPIC. Uh, on the left side, we have providers uh, and their single versus double unit transfusion orders. And then on the right side is their hemoglobin triggers again with green, yellow, red. And so these are the top 10 transfusing providers at Howard County in the emergency room. So overall, we've seen a decrease in blood use across the health system. Uh, and uh, the biggest decrease is in plasma, second biggest platelets, and then red cells and cryoprecipitate. And overall cost avoidance uh, for the health system uh, is about $1.2 million, which is only 4% of our total blood acquisition cost. But it still gets the attention of our administrators. So last two things I want to show is outcomes with extremes of transfusion. So first, outcomes in patients who do not accept blood, and then outcomes in patients after massive transfusion. 
So we recently looked at uh, 300 Jehovah's Witness patients who came in through our bloodless program that we have, and we did a propensity match comparison to uh, similar patients who accepted transfusion. Uh, so we looked at uh, six different outcomes, morbidity and mortality, and we found no difference in heart attack, respiratory, renal, or thrombotic outcomes. A slight but not significant uh, difference in hospital-acquired infection with less infection in the bloodless patients, and overall uh, uh, decreased mortality in the patients who didn't accept transfusion. Now, you don't just take them in off the street and not give them blood. So they get special treatment, okay? They get aggressive pre-op anemia treatment. They get aggressive use of the cell saver. We minimize their phlebotomy blood loss. They get tranexamic acid. Uh, so they do get special treatment. Uh, and we have the same or better outcomes. And we looked at cost and charges as well. And uh, we had a 12 to 14% decrease in, in charges and cost depending on how you looked at it. Uh, last thing I want to show is outcomes after massive transfusion, and we just recently finished this analysis. It's not published yet. Uh, but what we did is we took uh, every single patient admitted to our, hop, our facility over five years, and we plotted them on the x-axis uh, according to their red cell transfusion dose, okay? Uh, and then on the y-axis is percent of in-hospital mortality. So, of course, the ones who get more blood are going to be more likely to die. That's obvious. Uh, but we want to look at the slope of this line and the shape of the curve. And what we found, uh, this is units of transfused red cells from door to door, admit to discharge, in 10 unit increments. And so we found for every 10 additional units of red cells you get, we had a 10% increase in mortality. And it was a linear relationship. And at 50 units, we hit 50% mortality. So we call this the 50-50 rule. And uh, so once you get to 50 units, you might as well flip a coin, we think, to see if your patient's going to make it. But perhaps more interesting is this finding. Uh, the same dose of red cells is shown on the x-axis, only now we looked at five different morbid outcomes on the y-axis, and we found that there was a, a four to five fold increase higher incidence in infectious and thrombotic events compared to renal, respiratory, and ischemic events. So, and it was dose related, so we think that uh, massively transfused patients are at high risk for infection and thrombosis, and we should be more vigilant for prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of these outcomes. And I'll just end by thanking the people that I've worked with over the last five years and uh, try to answer any questions that you might have. So thank you. I'll leave you with this quote from the turn of the century while Mike throws the microphone around the room. So, anyone who wants to be the first to uh, test this out? Oh, come on, I gotta, I've been working on my arm. I will start. So uh, would you mind commenting, um, Dr. Frank, about uh, why Jehovah's Witness patients um, should get the special treatment, quote, and why not all patients should, or do you think that all patients should get this sort of preemptive pre preparation for blood loss intraoperatively? So that's a great question. I guess I don't have to repeat it because you have the mic, right? <laughs> uh, so why should uh, some patients get special treatment and not others? Uh, so especially before elective surgery, uh, to bring patients in anemic, for example, before a total hip or a total knee is, is not the right thing to do. They should have a workup to diagnose and treat their anemia before surgery because blood transfusion is a temporary fix. Uh, it's not treating the problem or the cause. So often it's iron deficiency or renal insufficiency and 
Even oral iron replacement works. If you have three or four weeks, it's slowly absorbed. It's a $4 treatment and the patients can, can benefit greatly. I, I agree. I think that uh, we should be striving to reduce phlebotomy blood loss, to use the cell saver more frequently. They even talk about meticulous surgical technique. And it sounds funny, but if, if I bring a Jehovah's Witness in for a Whipple and the average blood loss is a liter, okay, they're gonna lose half as much. The surgeons do something differently, okay? And they'll tell you they do something differently. Yeah, it's, uh, it'd be interesting to tease out what that is and how can, we can apply it, you know. And I think another interesting thing that uh, you did that applies, I think, potentially to so many different areas in medicine is peer pressure, right? I mean, you've, you did it, it's effective, it's free, um, and maybe it influences uh, physicians who are, you know, by their nature or by their training, competitive individuals. Uh, to, to get with, uh, you know, within that bell curve. It's, it works and it's fun and it's much better to show hemoglobin triggers than blood use. Right. Okay, if you show it surgeon comparison to their peers on blood use, they might not take it kindly. Uh, but if you say, hey, your hemoglobin trigger is higher than your peers, that's easier to digest. Definitely. Positive spin. <laughs> Does it still work? Yeah, it is. Um, this may have been on your slide, Dr. Frank, but uh, the nadir for the uh, hemoglobins in the um, Jehovah's Witnesses versus the non-Jehovah's Witnesses, I was curious if there was a significant gap there uh, in what they actually bottomed out at during their hospitalization. Uh, yeah, so the answer is yes. There was a difference, and it was about one gram lower nadir and one gram lower average discharge. And we we see, since we've never really tested the bottom limit of hemoglobin and anemia tolerance, it's not until you take care of these patients that you find out what, what's doable. So we've had plenty of elective surgery patients that walk out the hospital door after say prostate surgery with a hemoglobin of five and a half. And they are short of breath, but they, they walk to their car and they come back three weeks later and their hemoglobin's nine and then they come back again and it's back to normal. So um, we, see we, we realize that many patients tolerate hemoglobins much lower than, than we've ever seen because we never test that limit. We, we had an elective surgery patient for an enterocutaneous fistula repair and she had a post-op hemoglobin of 3.2 and so she was short of breath and she had to catch her breath in between words. Uh, but she spent an, uh, probably an extra month in the hospital. That's the one hit that you take uh, because she had to get iron and EPO and we had to get her up to a hemoglobin of seven or eight before she could leave. But, uh, but she did fine other than that. So it, it is interesting the um, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the things that you put on your slide is how do we tailor, um, how do we identify the right kind of treatment for the right kind of patient? And um, in one of my interests is, is the TAG. And, you know, studies similar to that, are there better functional tests that we could or should be using to identify which patients actually warrant blood products. I mean, the INR, what does that really mean in a liver patient who may, you know, uh, has, you know, if, if the tag is normal, you know, in that relationship between pro and anticoagulant, uh, coagulation is, is so complex. Right, um, yeah, I think, I think we, we don't have a good handle on coagulation monitoring. And uh, yeah. By the way, one of your cardiac anesthesiologists that just came here from Pittsburgh is one of the experts in the country on TAG. Yeah, yeah. His name is Ken Tanaka. Yeah. If you can get him to give a talk. Yeah, maybe he's on my list, him. yeah. Uh, so he, he knows more about coagulation than anybody I know. But uh, I think in doing liver transplants, I'm on that team, I noticed that the INR has to be two or higher before the TAG is any bit abnormal. And so 
the, the patient looks to be at no increased risk of bleeding clinically until the INR is two or higher, yet we're constantly treating 1.5, 1.7, 1.8 with plasma because we're treating a number rather than the patient. Right. So the same is true with platelets. The TED will not become abnormal until your platelet count is 40 or 50,000. And we have surgeons and anesthesia docs all the time that are trying to keep the platelet count above 100,000. Mm -hmm. So, and TEG is an $18 test. Right. Platelets are $500 a dose. Yeah. So that, you raised a really good point. And uh, kind of along with that, in terms of tranexamic acid being a game changer, is that uh, the, some concerning aspects of its non-discriminate or indiscriminate use is you know the risk for subsequent venous thromboembolism, which you know in crash two they're debating on our site. We actually had this huge debate about it a year and a half ago on that very topic in crash two, uh, which was fun. But um, but yeah, I mean it has it definitely has a potential for a huge role. Some of the data you present you know suggest it. Um, it's benefit. I mean I'm sure there are a lot of complicating factors that go into those numbers as well, but. Um, so you're, you're right. In fact, there's a New England Journal Review article on um, treatment of perioperative bleeding, and they admitted that tranexamic acid works. It reduces bleeding, it reduces transfusion, but they said the jury is still out on whether it increases thrombotic events because they said there's never been an adequately powered study. So all these studies come out of tranexamic acid, they say no increase in thrombotic events but they're so rare to start with. Uh, and a lot of those studies didn't do prospective evaluation of every patient. They only diagnosed them if they were clinically evident. So they say we don't have enough evidence yet to definitively say there's no increase in thrombotic events. Anyone else? Really want to throw this thing. <laughs> I want to see an right. overhead throw. I know, it's, uh, spike it when you catch it. <laughs> sure. All right. Okay. Thanks, Dr. Frank. Thank you. I appreciate it.